0: Erev Tov, good evening. We are together in the Rambam's introduction to the Mishneh Torah. Last time we were together, we discussed the Nivuah, the prophecy of Tsefaniyah. She mentioned there was uh, Avir Miyahus. We mentioned that Sifaniat now teaches or passes on the oral law to the next generation. Who is the next generation? Look together with me on page Laman 38 of the Rambam's Mishneh Torah here. Ubaruch, it's one, two, three, four, five lines down. There's a little khaf Alif over there. Right afterwards. Ubaruch ben Neriyah, Baruch the son of Neriyah kibel he receives the oralah from Yirmiyahu and his betadin so you have here Zephaniah Yirmiyahu and now you have a figure Baruch ben Neria Baruch ben Neria who knows who Baruch ben Neria was anything you know about Baruch ben Neria and I would love to see your faces if your cameras are on. I would love to see you. Thank you to those who have them on and those who don't. Thank you for doing it now. Anyone know who Baruch Ben Eriah is? Baruch Ben Eriah, obviously. That's the first name. Oh, you got the You like the first name. Very good. Baruch Ben Eriah is a student of. Yirmiyahu, one moment. Baruch Ben Neriah is a student of Yirmiyahu Hanavi, but it's a very important transition of leadership that happens here, in the oral transmission of the Torah, and I want to take a few minutes and just focus on Baruch Ben Neriah. Who is he? When was he? Where was he? and a few ideas from his life story that will help us understand more about what we can learn from the story of Baruch Ben Iriah. So the question is, where do we start? Baruch Ben Iriah is a very famous figure we see that his father's name is mentioned. That tells us that his father was someone of importance. In fact, his whole family seems to be very important people. Uh, and throughout Jewish literature, he's referred to as a sofer, a scribe, uh, perhaps a royal scribe involved with the royal government. Uh, he's in a, in a high power of position. He later on in his life becomes the personal sofer, the personal scribe of Yirmiyahu. That leads some scholars to suggest that he in fact left his full-time career as being a political scribe and, if that's the right word, a royal scribe, and becoming completely committed to his rabbi and teacher, Yirmiyahu, which reminds me, in my mind, a little bit of Yehoshua, alav and Moshe Rabbeinu, alav Shalom. Baruch ben Eriah is interesting for those who are interested in archaeology, for example. So, my father always shares a story that when he was uh, finished yeshiva, he went to university, decided to take a course, you know, I had to take extra courses in the Technion, so one of the courses that was offered was Bible. I have gone to Yeshiva, not a Yeshiva today. Today in the Shiva nobody studies Torah. But then they studied some Tanakh, uh, and said, I'll take the class. Didn't realize that Bible in university means how the Bible is not true, and everything in it is just a fairy tale. So the professor would teach things like, you know, we've dug all over Israel, we've never found a remembrance of King David. We've dug all over Israel, there's no wording at all, nothing mentions Shlomo HaMelech. These are all fabrications of a Jewish people, tribes in the desert, so on and so forth. And um, the professor would argue with my father. My father said, listen, you just didn't dig hard enough. The fact that you didn't find doesn't mean it wasn't there, it just means you didn't dig hard enough. And the truth is that when he came over to America, and I'm not making a pitch for a Christian newspaper, a magazine, but there's a periodical called the Bibli- Biblical Archaeology Review. I actually, actually just saw it in the news this week because they came up with something else. Uh, but they, many years afterwards, he's already here in San Diego. Put out well, wow, we found uh, signs, we found coins that mention on them David HaMelech, King David. And unfortunately, this is something that we see quite often. We see that there are those who dig in order to prove Hakadosh Baruch Hu's Torah correct, and those who dig in order to prove the HaKadosh Baruch Torah is incorrect. And this is something that unfortunately uh, normally goes down the line of the Israeli archaeologists are digging to prove that everything in the Tanakh is a fabrication, and the Christian archaeologists are busy digging to try to show that everything written inside of the Tanakh is true and is the word of God. i that it was the other way around. Or that both of them would be digging for the same reason. Nonetheless, Baruch Ben Eriah is one of the few Biblical figures whose actual name we have in full, perhaps the only one in this context, in full, on a seal. We have found a seal on something, in Hebrew it's called a, a tin, some kind of um, stone, I don't know exactly Tell you what it is, uh, but we found a seal, an emblem, a royal emblem of, of the signature of Baruch Ben Eriah. And that is a tremendous discovery, For those who are interested in placing him in which part of Jewish history he was in, was he real, did he exist? Baruch ben Eriah most definitely did exist, we always knew that, but today Baruch Hashem we have archaeological evidence to prove that as well. When it comes to who Baruch ben Eriah was, in this point in Jewish history, the Jewish Kingdom falls. It's really the beginning of Galut, it's the beginning of our exile. Baruch ben Neriya is living in a period in which the Jewish people had rejected the prophecies of Yirmiyahu, rejected him, and because of that merited, or maybe didn't merit, to enter into exile. Baruch ben Neriya is one of those leaders along with Yirmiyahu who goes into exile with the Jewish people and leads them there. What's crucial to understand about that story? is that if Baruch ben Eriah is in exile, and his rabbi is in exile, and the Jewish people are no longer in Eretz Yisrael, and they've rejected the prophecies of Yirmiyahu, there's really not much reason for Baruch ben Eriah to receive prophecy in the first place. And if you look here, the footnote at the end of this piece, of Kapach writes, Chav Bet. So Chav Bet just makes a note, to the Mechilta. The Mechilta, in the beginning of parashat Bo. Now, I did not copy over today the language of the Mechilta in its entirety. But the general gist of what happens there in the Mechilta is that Baruch Beneriah complains, so to speak, that the I don't understand. Every one of the Nevi'im had students. What are the name of the Nevi'im students? What are they called? Remember we spoke about them? The students of the Nevi'im, they're called? What? Beneh ha neviim. The students really refer to the children of the neviim. Beneh neviim are those who are being prepared to accept the mantle of prophecy, and that's exactly what Yirmiyahu has been preparing Baruch ben Neriah for his entire life. And Baruch ben Neriah does not merit to receive prophecy, and he's devastated. It's a very difficult thing for him to comprehend. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, why don't you give me prophecy? Why don't you allow me to communicate with you the way Yirmiyahu communicated with you? Why am I worse than any of the other students of the Naviim? This Mechilta here is referring to this piece of the puzzle in which Nivuah seems to seize here. And Baruch Ben Neriya goes on to continue leading the Jewish people but by not meriting their prophecy. If we can suggest, what's the purpose for a nevo'ah for Baruch Ben What Why does he need a nevo'ah? The Jewish people are in exile, they've rejected Elm there's no purpose for them to have a nevo'ah. Personal nevo'ot? Maybe. But public nevo'ot? Nevo'ot that are relevant to the whole people, nevo'ot for the Jewish government, there is none left. And it's in this context, of the Jewish Kingdom falling apart, Jewish people going to exile, Baruch Ben Neriah not receiving prophecy, that the life of Baruch Ben Neriah begins to become very important to us. Let's read together. If you have a Tanakh in front of you, Baruch Ben Neriah, if he does not have his own book of the Tanakh, so he's going to be mentioned. in the book of Yerim So if you look in the book of Yir-Miyahu, if you have an art scroll, it's on page 1166, but you don't need an art scroll. Look in uh, Yirmiyahu 39, Lametet. A chain of events is put into effect after the fall of Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim is captured, it's fallen. All kinds of things begin to happen. Sidkiyahu Alav is blinded by Nebuchadnezzar. He's led away to exile in chains. What happens next? Look in Perek Mem, chapter forty, page eleven sixty-eight. Here, Hadavar Shariah, Hermiau Metadunai, Akarshalachot on the Vuzradan, Rav Tabachim, Min Harama Bekartoto, Vuasur, Bazikim, Betokol Galuti Rushanai, Vyuda, Hamuglim Bavella. We read these Pesukim anti Shabbat, they're hard Pesukim to read. Hermiau is there, chained, on his way to exile and he knows that he must pass on the baton of leadership to somebody who does he pass on the baton of leadership to let's look together Pasuk vel denu lo yeshuv ve al gedalia ben achikam ben shafan asher iskid melekh bavel ba'rey he turns to Gedaliah, the son of Achikam, who has been given the legal right to self-govern. It's some autonomous form of government under occupation, foreign occupation of Israel. Gedaliah ben Achikam becomes the governor over the cities of Judea. Gedaliah and comes <laughs> to Gedaliah, son of Achikam, and he sits with him amongst, amongst the people who are left over in Eretz Zeran. And everyone hears the news that gedaliah Benachikam has been appointed the Jewish governor over Judea. And the Jews who are there. You have here autonomous Jewish government in Israel, under foreign occupation. We have a fast day, the fast day that's named after Gedalia. When is that fast day? After Rosh Hashanah. When after Rosh Hashanah? The day. Mamas, the day after Rosh Hashanah. Correct. It's Som Gedalia. I cannot tell you how many times in my career as a rabbi, people have asked. Why do we fast on Psalm Gedaliah? What happened? What happened on Som Gedaliah? What happened is what has not stopped happening since. The fact that we can even ask the question what happened on the fast of Gedaliah means that we're so disconnected with the story of Gedaliah that that is bound to happen to us again When you forget history, it repeats itself. Gedaliah ben Achikam is the turning point. Not a positive turning point for what's going to happen to the Jewish people entering the exile. There's a few personalities that are introduced here. Yishmael ben Netanyahu yohanan, yonatan, the children of Kareach I didn't have a chance to look and I don't recall by heart if it's a kamatz katan or not. Usraya ben Tanchumet These personalities are here. وَيَشَبَى promise them, reassures them not to be afraid. Let's keep reading. Let's look on page 1170, Pasuk Yudbed 12. The Jews begin to return from the corners in which they've been hiding. Asher yavo they come to Gedaliah and Mitzpah. Mitzpah? They come to him. yain, And they collect all kinds of wine, dried fruits, things to eat. And here comes a warning. V'yohanan, comes, and all the officers of the army, they come to Gedaliah. And they tell him, Balis Amon. You should know that Balis, who is Balis, is the king of Ammon, a sworn enemy of the Jewish people. Shalachid Ishmael Nafesh has sent Yishmael, the son of Netanyahu, to assassinate you. And Gidaliah bin Ahikam and Gidalya refused to accept this uh, rumor. That Yeshmael was coming to kill him. V'yochanan ben Karei chamar el Gadliyah ba'seter b'mitzpa le'mor el Chana v'aket Yishmael b'Netania v'ish lo yeda. He said, "I have the ability to go and kill him quietly. Nobody will know. Let me go kill him first. Lama yakach yakakan nefesh v'nafotu kol Yehuda niktbatim alecha ba'avda sheri t'Yehuda. Why are you going to allow yourself to be in a vulnerable place? Where he will assassinate you, and then this remnant of Israel that is here, this, the few that are left behind, they'll also have to disperse into exile. Gedaliah ben tells ben Kareach, Do not do this thing. You are speaking falsely against a good man, Ishmael. Here there's a warning. A warning that your life is in danger, but not just your life, Gedaliah Achikam, Who else is in danger? The rest of the Jewish people. There are only remnants left. She'ri Pletah, these are the survivors of the galut. Now if they assassinate you, we'll be left without a leader, we'll all be forced into exile. Let me go kill him first, Gedaliah Achikam says No. It's not true. You're lying about Yishmael. He would never do such a thing. Vahib pergmem aleph. So, Nirmiyahu chapter 41. Vahib chodesh ashavi'i. It was on the seventh month. Which month is the seventh month? Tishrei. Tishrei. Very good. Tishrei. Tishrei. Very good. Tishrei is the seventh month. Very good. Vahib chodesh ashavi'i. On the seventh month. Ba Ishmael ben Netanyah ben Elishamah Mizera המלוכה Yishmael, the son of Netanyah, the son of Elishamah He's from the royal family He came to him with the officers of the king With ten men el They came to Gadaliyah ben-achikam and they come to break bread with him. Most likely to eat Rosh Shana meals with him. He hosts them. Come celebrate the holiday of Rosh Hashanah with me. And they do. Ishmael and these ten men. In the middle of the meal of Rosh Hashanah. Maybe not Rosh Hashanah, maybe it's after Rosh Hashanah. A day after, the fast is a day after. So somewhere in the first few days of uh, Tishrei, Yishmael, the son of Netanyahu, and the ten people who are with him, they rise up, and they strike Gedaliah with a sword and they assassinate him. This is our man who the king had allowed to maintain Jewish autonomy in the land of Israel. Can you think perhaps of a motive that Yishmael would have, a Jewish man, from the royal family? What motive does he have to conspire with the king of Ammon to come and assassinate the Jewish leader of the remnants of the exile of of Amisret? What's the motive? Every crime has to have a motive. Why? Why does he deserve the job? Why not Gedaliah? He's royalty, as you said. Oh, very good. That's the answer. That's the answer. The answer is, I'm royalty. I should be the ruler. You have to understand how how pathetic and absurd this is. You're talking about galut. <laughs> You're talking about exile. We are falling apart. Our king has been destroyed. Our government has fallen to pieces. Am Israel is in exile in chains. Our prophet is gone. And you're fighting over what? A little hilltop? What do you have? How many Jews are left? What kind of royal office is this? The king appointed him. This is grabbing at a, a, a lifeboat that we have. It's a raft in the ocean, in the sea. You want to sink the lifeboat because of some pride? Because of your own ego, your own arrogance, you're going to destroy Am Yisrael. To who? To help who? The king of Ammon. This theme of infighting in the Jewish community for what? For what are you fighting? To accomplish what exactly? To get what? We have a kingdom to fight over. We have a meluchat to fight over. We have riches and masses to fight over. We're an amefozar forad, we're scattered dispersed people. We're barely holding on for dear life to the lifeboat that is the Jewish people. They wanna drown the rest of us because you're fighting over which seat you have in the lifeboat? Can you imagine? Of course you can imagine. This is the story of the Jewish people today, the story of the Jewish people yesterday, the story of the Jewish people for the last 2,000 years. There, there are things in modern Jewish history that we don't discuss, and you know that I don't discuss politics ever from this place. When it comes to politics, let me tell you my only stance, is that all politicians are bad. That's the only thing I can tell you. I don't know righteous politicians, no tzaddikim in politics. And so if you think, well, it's bad. I like this rasha more than that rasha, only a rasha can like rashaim. You can't like Rashaim. Rashaim or not? You have to hate evil. At the end of the day though, there are people who make decisions for the whole world. So you have to get involved a little bit. But don't be so proud of your Rasha. Ah, look at my Rasha. He's so great. Look at my Rasha. She's so wonderful. It's a Rasha. In the early years of the State of Israel, there were fighters who were trying to fight for the independence of of the land of Israel, of the Jewish people from the occupation of the British over Eretz Israel, And they resorted to many different tactics. The year I don't have in my mind right now, not so long, right before the founding of the State of Israel. I mean the date. And there's a ship that is headed towards the shores of Israel. That ship is carrying weapons. Weapons to help the Jews who are in Israel save themselves from the Arabs who are trying to massacre them every day. The Jewish people are choked. They don't have weapons. They don't have enough supplies. The man sailing the ship into Israel is none other than Menachem Begin. Menachem Begin is the head of an organization. I we know the name of that organization. Etzel. Etzel, very good. Otherwise known as? The Irgun. They, they call them the Irgun. That's a, a, a nickname. You have on the other side of the Jewish spectrum, David Ben Gurion, Yitzhak Rabin, and then, also. You have them, which organization do they represent? They're fighters for which, which uh, unit? What's, what's the group called? The Haganah. We call them the Haganah. That's the, yeah, we're going to say Ergun and Haganah. We could say that? You accept if I use those two terms? Mm-hmm. Yes. So you have here David Ben-Gurion, Yitzhak Rabin, that are standing on a beach. They have intel that this ship is coming into Israel. The official cover story, they're afraid of this terrorist organization led by Menachem Begin. They're afraid of them bringing weapons into Israel. It's a boat full of Holocaust survivors and weapons. That's what this boat was. And they make an executive decision. What do you do with your fellow brothers and sisters that just fled Hitler, Yom of Zichon, that are bringing weapons to help the cause of Am Yisrael and Eretz Israel? What do you do? you sink them in the ocean the Megarion, yitzhak rabin and a few other names that i'd rather not mention they give orders to their men to fire at the altalena that's the name of the ship the story of what happens there is something you should read on your own personal accounts when i was in yeshiva, i had a roommate whose grandmother, I, I, she passed away when I was in Shiva with him, whose grandmother had received a special medal from Menachem Begin when he was Prime Minister because she had saved his life on the Alta She saw that something was coming towards Menachem Begin and she jumped on him and pushed him into the ocean, into the Mediterranean Sea. She saved his life and he gave her thanks later in life when he became Prime Minister. You have to imagine this story. The world is watching. Am Israel is fighting not for independence, political independence. Am Israel is fighting because the Holocaust has just burned down Europe. We have nowhere to go except for Eretz Israel. And there's a few of us there. A few against millions of enemy forces. And who do we fire on? Who do we shoot at? Not at our enemies. Why would we fight them? The Haganah was all about self-control, about restraint, about not fighting back, only defense. So instead we fight our own brothers and sisters and Holocaust survivors that Hitler didn't manage to kill, we managed to shoot in the middle of an ocean, right off the shores of Eretz Israel. If you wish to understand anything about Israeli politics, anything... I'm not talking here about politics, like what well, you think politics. To understand what's the divide in Israel. What happened? On which history is this country based? This is where you have to go. You must start here. The world is fighting us. And instead of joining together and fighting the world back to protect each other collectively, Am Israel consistently chooses to fight each other instead and our enemies who are around us, they look at us, and they don't know what to do. They don't know what to do. How could it be that instead of us having to kill Am Israel, they're doing the work for us? Instead of us destroying the Jewish people, the Jewish people leave them together long enough, they'll destroy each other. That's how Am works. Recently, now in Israel, there was a Tamich not from his camp, but Tzimichacham nonetheless, who met with other Jewish leaders who belonged to the wrong denominations for the rabbinic establishment. And today they're crucifying him. I'm using that word intentionally. For the audacity to meet evil Jewish people. How much do we have to fight before we ever get to the idea that we're not going to agree with each other? We belong at the same table. We should at least fight with each other face to face. We should at least agree on a venue, on a place, on a time, a location, with which to debate Jewish ideas, things that are relevant to the whole community. Ha-Misrael, those seems to choose always to do something else. It's exactly what happens here. Gedaliah ben Achikam is assassinated, not by enemy forces, by enemies among the Jewish people. Can you imagine the day after Rosh The highest day of the Jewish calendar, maybe aside from the you keep know, Kippurim. You come out of Rosh straight, straight, the next morning, straight into Tzom Gedaliah. What do you think HaKadosh B'Chu is trying to tell us? You just did Teshuvah, we're all so wonderful, we love each other, it's so great, you want to do Teshuvah for something, you have 10 days of Teshuvah, do Tishma for this. This is a national chet, a national iniquity, a sin, an evil that Am Yisrael is still guilty of today. And so the story continues. Question. Yes. Um, I'm confused in that the name Yishmael was always associated with Islam. And yet, he was a prince of Yehuda. So here we don't, we don't yet have Islam in this time of our history, uh, but you find that throughout the Talmud, Rabbi Yishmael, there are, there are rabbis named Yishmael. At which point does Yishmael go from being a name that Jewish people won't give their children? So maybe that's, maybe that's the way to look at it. It could be that when we entered into the exile of Yishmael, we no longer wanted to use that name. I mean, I don't, I don't have never seen anywhere why you should not name a child Yishmael. In fact, I love the name Yishmael. In the name of man of God, the man of Hashem. Correct. But Though I was it's, just thinking, in terms of historical use of the name, I was very surprised to see that. It's very curious. Again, the more, very, the more you study ideas, and the more you find out, it's just, very curious though, who is this Ishmael? again? And I'm not saying uh, a comparison, a hard comparison, a soft comparison. It's another brother, a family member, who's here to try to destroy us. But at the end of the day, we're related to Ishmael. Ishmael is the son of a Avinu. Why does Yitzchak have to worry Ishmael For what? For what purpose? What's the problem with Ishmael? Your brothers. But here, maybe Yishmael has a not so positive connotation here. Maybe something about that Yishmael, the rivalry that exists, that is dangerous for Am So what happens now at the end of the chapter? Okay, this is a... Uh... Sorry, I skipped for you uh, a whole section. Ultimately, what happens is. Yeah, well, hold on. I'm sorry. I'm. I'm... There's a plot here. I'm sorry, Michina. Before I get to this. In the middle of Mem Aleph, in chapter 41, you're going to see they end up killing more Jewish people. They entrap them and then they kill them. This is a terrible part of the story, which I didn't want to get into. Uh, What happens in Yud? Yishmael captures all of the rest of the Jewish people who are in Mitzpah. So he kidnaps all of these Jews. He hears. Yohanan hears what's happening with Yishmael, all this evil that he's done. They go all together to go to war against Yishmael. And they find him by this great pool of water in Giv'on. The captives see that someone has come to rescue them and they rejoice. And all these people turned back and they went over to Yohanan. And Yishmael escapes from Yohanan and is absorbed into the people of Ammon. It's enough, if I'm not mistaken, this seems to be, and it could be that I am mistaken, but it could be this is the last we hear of him. He goes to Ammon. That's where he, he disappears to. Ultimately, this group of people are now terrified why are they terrified who are they afraid of who was just assassinated Gedaliah, the governor that who had appointed they're terrified that what happens when they find out that the Jewish people assassinated his appointee they're afraid he's going to come kill them these are the survivors of that assassination and so they run away to Egypt. And ultimately what happens is that it's the assassination of Gedaliah ben Achikam which leads to the real downfall of Am Yisrael. We could have remained autonomous for a long time, but we didn't. Once again, like with the Bir in the second temple, we had enough storehouses for years to stay within the walls of Yerushalayim and be sieged. But we decided instead to go to civil war we lost those resources, we fall hands to the Romans. This happens over and over and over and over, Amisrael. Self sabotage ultimately plays into the hands of our enemies. Can you imagine if Amisrael had never left? And if we had retained a kingdom of Jewish people in Israel? Yes, albeit under occupation. Yes, true, not truly free. But in Yehuda, in Judah, we would have never left. That galut was self-imposed. The destruction of the B'mikdash may be not so much, but that galut was self-imposed. When Yohanan flees, it seems like Baruch ben Ner'gah goes with him. Ultimately following following Yirmiyahu into the Golan, there is a little piece here. If you turn to page 40, uh, it's a chapter 45. 45. That's 1178 in the art scroll. These are the words that Yirmiyahu, the prophet, spoke to Baruch ben When he was writing down, he was, uh, there's a word for this. He was a scribe. He was di- writing down everything Yirmiyahu was dictating to him. בשנה in the fourth year he tells him Yisrael, Hashem is speaking to you baruch through Yirmiyahu you say woe to me that Hashem has added pain to my, my existing pain I'm suffering and I have not found rest. And you should tell him, Ko amar Adonai, hine asher baniti ani Say to that which I have built, I am now destroying. Vet asher nata'ati ani notesh, and that which I planted, I am uprooting. Vet kol haaretzi. And I'm going to do this throughout the whole land. Tevakesh al tevakesh. Don't ask for great things for yourself. Perhaps this is a reference to the prophecy. That Baruch Ben Eriah so much wants. Don't ask for this. I am now bringing evil, misfortune to every living creature. And the booty, the reward that you'll have, is the fact that I will let you live. Wherever you go, you will be safe. That's your privilege. You're asking for too much if you want more than that but you I will allow to survive. Our Chachamim see it as such a great tragedy that Baruch ben Neria was fitting. He was ready to be the next prophet of Am Yisrael. He should have continued being our leader as Zirmiyahu was. But we destroyed that. We destroyed that with the infighting, with Gedaliya ben Achikam's assassination. This leads to a theological conversation which I'll get to in just a moment. But with your permission, I just want to tell you a few things that our Chachamim write about Baruch Ben Eriah. A rabbi struggle... With why Ezra didn't leave exile in the times of... Who, who let the Jewish people back in the generation of Ezra? Who was that? His name? Let's go. was uh, No, a, a non-Jewish king. Who let Am Israel back? Uh, the, uh, the Persian king. Koresh, very good. Koresh. He lets the Jewish people go back. So why didn't he go back? Why did... Ezra waits so long to go back, in Masech Kiyam. so long as Baruch Ben was alive, Ezra, who's the next person we'll talk about, Ezra, the student of Baruch Ben refused to leave his rabbi. So long as Baruch Ben was alive, he chose to remain in exile and study from his rabbi, then to go back to Eretz Israel. So, it's an interesting question. Why did Baruch ben Eriah not go back? Hey, Baruch ben Eriah, why don't you go back to Israel? You're the leader. Why does Ezra have to wait for him to die in order for him to go back? Why does Baruch ben Eriah not go back to Eretz Israel? This answer is in Shir Hashirim Rabbah. The Midrash on Shir Hashirim offers the following story. Lama Why did Baruch ben Eriah not return to Eretz Israel? When, Israel, uh, when uh, Koresh allowed the Jews to go back? Baruch ben Adam Gadol Vyashishaya. Baruch was a great man, but he was also very old. <speaking in Hebrew> and even if they would take him and Today they use that word as a stretcher, but uh, even if they would transport him, it would be dangerous for him. He was unable to be brought to Eretz Israël. He simply wasn't in the, in the physical state of being in which he was able to return to Eretz Israël. And because of that, he remains in exile. There are some other teachings of our Chachamim. Our rabbi, Zamasech al Migilan, page Yuddan al so 14b, they mentioned that there were eight Nevi'im. Who were also Kohanim, who were descendants of Rachav? Who was Rachav? We mentioned her when we discussed Yahushua, you remember? Who was Rachav? She was Yahushua's wife. Previously, she was an innkeeper. You remember that word? An innkeeper. Our scroll is really good with that. Uh, she was a, a prostitute, and she marries Yahushua after saving the spies who come to uh, Eretzren. She married it to righteous descendants. Neriya and Baruch are both the descendants of Rachav HaZona, that even though they came, these, these are the people that she merited to have as her righteous descendants. Let's address one more point. And the truth is that if you have a Moreh Nebuchim on your own, you should probably do this whole chapter. I can't in this context do the whole Morinavukhim with you, this whole chapter. In the Ramam's Morei People ask me why I use such an old one. I use an old one because I won't give up a Rav Kapach for a nicer print. I prefer a real translation than a nicer print of a different person. In section two of the Morinavukhim. In chapter 32, the Rambam begins to discuss here prophecy. Who can merit to receive prophecy? He mentions three different categories, three different approaches to prophecy. There's a first camp of people, early people who believed in prophecy. Even some of the masses of the Jewish people believe such a thing. Meaning, not Chachamim, but Jewish masses believe prophecy works like this. I'm sorry Rabbi, what chapter are you reading again? Chapter, it's uh, section two of the Moine chapter 32. And it's, it's, I'm reading about one paragraph in. I don't know how it's broken down by you. So we have some co-religionists who also believe that this is how prophecy works. And I think that most Orthodox Jews, if I had to use that word, they believe that prophecy works like this, and I'll prove my point in just a moment. V'yish Hashem italeh bocher mi adam oto That Hashem chooses whoever he wants from among the people and makes him a prophet and prophecies to him and sends him out. oto adam chacham It doesn't make a difference if this person is chacham or he's a fool. Whether he's old or he's young, ela nimbo, They have some minimal requirements. He has to be a nice person. He has to have some common good, uh, good character traits. Because even they don't believe that Hashem would prophesy an evil person. According to this approach, many old nations, as well as many of our uneducated Jewish brethren, they believe that when it comes to prophecy, anybody can be a prophet. Prophecy is about a Kadosh Baruch Hu choosing you to be a prophet. Am I correct that most Jews believe this? What do you think? Is that a, is that a heavy accusation against the Orthodox Jewish community? Yes. It is a heavy accusation. Raphael, you're right. It is a heavy accusation. So prove me right. Later, when you have time, go into Google. Go into Google and look up the Baba who goes around Israel right now telling everybody that he's the Mashiach, that the end is near that evil things are coming to the Jewish people. He is considered a huge personality in the Jewish scene. I cannot tell you how many rabbis and chief rabbis think that he is the chosen one of Hashem. He's alive right now. He used to be a tractor driver in Gush Katif. He was a farmer, you know, drove a truck, a tractor, you know, with the big wheels on the farm. Old McDonald, that's who he was. And didn't study Torah, didn't know anything. One day overnight... I think in the age of the 30s, somewhere in his 30s, HaKadosh Baruch Hu revealed himself to him. The man, I'm not exaggerating right now, the man literally stands in front of cameras. And he speaks in front of audiences like this. He downloads messages from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, downloads them, and he shares them with everybody. And if you think he's not a, not a common person, you can ask me afterwards for his name, you'll put it in Google, And you'll tell me almost every Jewish organization you know, website that you know, they have him in their articles, they quote him, they mention him. He's a tractor driver who now is a prophet of the Jewish people. How can a tractor driver become this great rabbi when he never even went to Yeshiva? How could it be? I'll tell you how. Because like this, they believe that a Kaddosh Baruch can choose anybody. Anybody can have a Kaddosh Baruch reveal himself to them and then they become a tzaddik. No, what does a tzaddik have to do with being a Chacham? You're just a tzaddik. Or how about the guy in Elat? He was a bouncer in a nightclub in Elat. Today he runs around Israel with a black hat and a big shofar. He blows shofar to heal people and save people. The guy calls himself Rabbi So-and-so. Interviewed in the news as Rabbi So-and-so, obviously nowhere near as the following of the first guy I mentioned to you. But he's honest. I never went to shiva. How did I become a rabbi? Hakadosh Baruch revealed Himself to me outside of that nightclub. I was a bouncer, now I'm a baba. That's what happened to me. It's a good book. You should write a book from bouncer to baba. That would be a nice book. Am Israel believes this. The bouncer. Am Israel believes these things. Yesterday he was an Amaritz, today he's a tzaddik. You have some person come through here selling amulets, telling you they can energy heal you, they can read. Let me sit down with them for 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Let us study a piece of Shukhan Aruch together. Let me have 10 minutes with them. If they can't study Shulchan Aruch, forget the Gemara. I'm not talking about Gemara, Mishnayot. Shulchan Aruch, let me sit with them. Where? Hirchot N'tilat Yadayim. I want to sit with them Hirchot N'tilat Yadayim. All of these babas, are going to fall apart. Mekubalim. What's a Mekubal? What is a Mekubal? You know you're when you say Mekubalim, you want to talk about Mekubalim. Darizal, Harchaim Vital. vital the Ben Ishchai, the Chida, Chacham Yahu, the Pele you're not talking about the Baba from the nightclub. You're not talking about the tractor driver who today was chosen to be a prophet of Hashem. But the tens of thousands of Jewish people who believe in these people, you think it's not you? I told you, I'm going to give you a name afterwards when I'm not on camera. You're welcome to look him up. Look how many people quote him. It should scare you. Many people believe in this. The second is that of the philosophers. I'm not going to read to you inside what the Rambam writes. The Rambam says that it's a, it's a belief that a person has to perfect themselves in wisdom and intellect until they're able to cling to HaKadosh Baruch or to this divine source of information at which point they become a prophet. Says the Rambam then, v'ashkafash tishit the third the third type. So the first one is the HaKadosh which chooses you. The second one, if I could summarize very simply, you choose HaKadosh Baruch You work hard to become a prophet. The third one is what the Rambam says. Let's see how the Rambam writes. The third approach. It is the Hashkafah of our Torah. It's the foundation of our approach. So it's not, the Rambam is not saying it's not my approach. It's the Torah's approach this one. And it's very similar to the philosophical understanding. Obviously, a stupid person can't be a Navi. But there's one detail that we differ from the philosophers about Nevoah. What is it? That the person who's fitting for Nivu'ah he can only... He is not able to prophesy unless, unless what? HaKadosh Baruch chooses him too. So you can perfect yourself all you want. But you being perfect is not enough for you to prophesy. It's enough for you to be worthy of prophecy. But not to actually prophesy. And his example, he mentions another example, but I mentioned... We can learn this from Baruch Ben-Eriah. He's a student of Yirmiyahu. And his rabbi prepared him, made sure he was able to be a prophet. And his whole desire of his existence was to become a prophet. But he was denied prophecy. This is the approach of Judaism regarding prophecy. You can perfect yourself, but at the end of the day, it's not enough to come here, something has to come to you as well. HaGadosh Baruch has to choose you as well. And this is where we differ from the first two categories. The book Muen Vuchim is so important, it's so important, it doesn't make a difference if you have other inclinations in Torah aside from it, but it's a foundational work at least the parts that are understandable. There are parts of Moray that you really need a teacher, you really need to sit hard and, and work, and maybe it's not even so relevant for you. But the foundations of, of Emunah, of Deot, foundations of our faith that are in the Moray are so crucial. Why on earth they don't teach Moray and Yeshivot? The real answer is because the Yeshivot would cease to exist if we taught Moray and Yeshivot. But the answer, they prefer to study all kinds of other trivial works, not tri- trivial things instead of, of real, real books of Chachamim, you don't have to just study Moray Nebuchim. What about the book of Kuzari, of Rabbi Yudah Levi? Seferi Karim, of Rabbi Yosef Albo? What about Chovot al of Rabbeinu Bakhe? The real foundational works of Am Yisrael. Who studies them? Which yeshivot studied them? And don't tell me I learned Chovot al I know everyone in yeshiva or in seminary studied only one chapter of Chovot al Only one chapter. Which chapter? Anybody know which chapter everyone studies? About yeah, very good. Only about Bitachon. That's what they study. There's a, there's a fantastic introduction. Chuvat Levavot. You should see it. In which he destroys the Judaism of 2020. The whole introduction of the book. Destroys. a Similar destruction in a different context in Halakha. The Benishchai in his introduction to Rav Palim destroys what we know today to be the Jewish system. Most likely that's why they don't study his books. Rav Peretz for many years used to come and give lectures in different schools in Yerushalayim. One of them was the Bet Yaakov, I think his granddaughter studied there. Sephardic Bet Yaakov. So they would bring him to teach. One time in the Shiur he quoted Rabbi of the Kuzari. And the principal came over to him and said, "Nagav Peretz, we appreciate your time very much. We appreciate that you don't charge us for classes, but we ask that you don't come back to our school anymore. How dare you quote Rabbi Yudah Levi in a Jewish school? I went over my time when it comes to the Rambam. But if there are messages that we can walk away from, the last one first, we must study classic Jewish texts. Baruch ben Neriah is a textbook case of a person who desired to be close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and that desire wasn't necessarily reciprocated by HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That's something that many of us may experience in our life, maybe not in terms of prophecy, but to know that such a thing is real, it's there, it exists, to know how to deal with the pain of that. Baruch ben Neriah goes on to lead the Jewish people anyways. He becomes the leader of the Jews in Babel, He teaches Ezra, he makes the next generation of leadership who brings the Jewish people back home. But they say, there's a saying, what's the difference between a smart person and a wise person? Is a smart person will get himself out of problems that the wise person would have never got himself into in the first place. That's the difference between a smart person and a wise person. In Hebrew, a chacham and a pikiach. What does it mean? What does it mean for us? There are so many tricks of how to get out of galut how to get out of exile, how to be the Izra, how to bring the Mashiach, this is going to bring Mashiach, that is going to bring Mashiach. Why not, instead of focusing how to bring the Giulah, focus on what caused the Galut in the first place? The story of Gedaliah, Achika, the story of Yishmael, the story of yochanan betrayal in the Jewish ranks, disintegration of Jewish leadership. You want to see another example? Go look at the beginning of the Kerite movement, the politics that started that movement. The Rambam's children and grandchildren were the Jewish leaders of Egypt, and all of a sudden somebody else needed a position too. And so what happens? He goes to fight, goes to war. That war ends up a split in Judaism between the rabbinic Jews and the Kerite Jews two different governments, our autonomy of a Jewish, autonomous Jewish government in Egypt falls to pieces, and the exile that you know about is where we are all today. This happens over and over and over and over. Baruch ben Ilya is the next link in our chain. And he teaches us not just about what happens when we cause destruction. But for me, Baruch ben Ilya gives hope. Hope that yes, he didn't merit prophecy. Yes, he was exiled from Eretz Yisrael. Yes, he didn't merit to all the things he wished to see. But when life gives you lemons, when Baruch Ben Eriah is dealt this hand, he does not stop. He continues going forward. And it's only because of this crucial turning point, the link in the chain is so strong, that Baruch Ben Eriah gives us Ezra HaSopher, who we will discuss tomorrow night.